0: What do you love about music? To begin with? Everything.
1: Great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American
2: Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we are going to do a dissection of a classic album from the 1970s, Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life On its 30th anniversary Jim One of the greatest albums Ever made We do this periodically On Sound Opinions We look back On a classic album Tell you why it mattered then But more importantly Why it still matters now Why this piece of work that was recorded 30 years ago still matters to people today. That's the key. Plus, Greg, we have reviews of
1: some uh, highly anticipated new albums by Beck and the Killers. But first, as always, we have some music news.
2: Big news has to be the resolution of the uh, Rhode Island nightclub fire that took place in February of 2003. This has been wending its way through the court system in the wake of that disaster ever since. We've been following it on Sound Opinions. A few months ago, we told you that the tour manager for the band Great White, Dan Buscelli, was sentenced to four years in prison, tearful sentencing for the man. The pyrotechnics were set off just as Great White was taking the stage. The crowd panicked. Fire filled the club. 100 people died. Buscelli took the fall, basically, for the band in this case and uh, was sentenced to four years in prison. Now, just a few days ago, the owners of that Rhode Island nightclub were sentenced. The owner, Michael Deirdren sentenced to four years in prison. His brother, Jeffrey, received a suspended sentence. Michael apparently was on the premises at the time running the club. His brother, Jeffrey, was visiting. Visiting the club under the auspices of a film crew, actually, ironically, filming a uh, documentary, I guess, on club safety issues when this fire broke out. The survivors of the patrons who were killed in this particular incident have reacted with a sense of outrage to these uh, sentencings, these four-year prison terms that were meted out to the tour manager and club owner, respectively, as not enough in what seemed to be a, a gross case of negligence well greg you have to keep it in perspective
1: i mean uh, the club owner and the tour manager getting four years i mean they didn't set out to cause anybody harm murder wasn't on the agenda a big stupid heavy metal show with pyrotechnics was in that spirit great white apparently is gonna reunite with its original members and uh, they're working on an album and they're gonna return to the road this could be viewed as kind of crass and opportunistic or it could be viewed as what else are these guys going to do with their lives? I mean, they are spinal tap, you know? They're going to be playing when they're 60 because they don't know anything else to do. In fact, the lead guitarist, Mark Kendall basically said that He said these people in the club were like friends to us Not just rock fans There's a fellowship with the surviving victims We all get together, we hug, we cry For the majority of them They all want to hear the band play again May or may not be the case I think there are probably some people who don't want to Because a massive civil suit is underway Against him and against the lead singer of the band So the criminal part of this is finally done With two four-year sentences behind bars But the civil thing is going to go on for a while all right, we got some
2: more music news.
3: i got some bad news for you, sunshine. King isn't well. He stayed back in the hotel. And they've sent us along. This is a surrogate band. We're going to find...
1: That's Roger Waters within the flesh. Uh, he played that to open a set that he performed in Chicago uh, the other night. Greg, you and I were there. Roger Waters, founding member of Pink Floyd, crossing the country, playing in California, I believe tonight, in Seattle, in a couple of days, three night stand at the Hollywood Bowl, sold out. I just wanted to say a few words about this Waters show because I was blown away. I have to say that in the divorce, the great divorce that left David Gilmore, Nick Mason, Rick Wright as Pink Floyd, and Roger Waters out, you know, in yes. the cold, I sided with with Gilmore because Gilmore was the masterful musician. Waters was the conceptualist. I'd rather have pretty sounding music with no concept (laughs) than a lot of concept and and lousy music yes although i certainly respect waters as a songwriter but what he did was really interesting and i wanted to get your take on it i purposely didn't read your tribune review if you don't know he's been playing all of dark side of the moon that was the second set but the first set was kind of a sampling from throughout his career Mm -hmm. uh, and what he did is pull together i believe every anti-war song he's ever written and it made two points he made it very clearly about America's involvement in Iraq, but also it said, hey, Pink Floyd is always dismissed as this band that sounds good, that has no ideas. But here is this work that has always meant something. I've always been anti war. And if you listen, even in The Dark Side of the Moon, Us and Them is a song about war. And money, he put in the context with those wonderful videos of the pumping oil rigs, you mm-hmm. know, that kind of said, hey, this is what it's all
2: about. I thought it was an interesting take from an old geezer, classic rock dude. This whole Waters Gilmore split. We've seen Gilmore on the road in the spring. Now Waters, you know, it's odd. Here are these guys reunited for four songs at the Live Aid concert in London in, in, yeah. in 2005, and it was brilliant. And you go, that it was great. These four guys belong together. So Gilmore goes on the road, and he's got Rick Wright with him on keyboards. Waters goes on the road, and he's got Nick Mason with him on drums on a few tour stops. Yeah, he played all the European shows, but not, only a handful in America. So these four guys are sort of floating around, circling each other, going, you, yeah. you know, let's do the obvious thing, and let's get together and do this right, guys, huh? Well, it's high
1: time, because as Waters sings and in the flesh, anything else is just a
2: surrogate band. Uh, it, it's ridiculous, and it was a surrogate band. It was Waters doing very note-perfect cover versions of all of his best-known music, and the band was certainly up to speed in terms of its ability to replicate all those classic classic parts. But it, it's interesting. The solos aren't solos anymore. They are note for note mimicry of David Gilmour's guitar parts. So might was, well you might as well get like. Gilmour Yeah, might as well get Gilmour. He's out there. He's touring. And Gilmour says he doesn't want to do it. And Waters is kind of being a little you know, cagey about it. I got to say, Jim, I completely disagree with you on the political end of it. <laughs> do oh, you really? My God, I felt like I was getting my head caved in by a sledgehammer. I mean, I agree with 98% of what he was saying. I mean, we're in a bad war and we're being run by a, a president who I disagree with. I don't need to have that pounded into my head. It's kind of a dim-witted sense of preaching with dull music behind it. Everything from the final cut onward has been kind of increasingly dull. And then Nadir was this new song that he's showcasing on this tour called Leaving Beirut. It's a dull, lifeless, amelodic song with really kind of transparent political ideas. Man, does he think that little of me that I can't even understand a song with a little bit of complexity in it? I mean, does he have to batter me over the head with oh, his ideas? you're being unkind. See, you're, you're letting the who off uh, easy last week, giving them a completely free they pass. They didn't come at you me know. with a bunch of dim-witted political ideas. They oh, came at know. me with I music thought, that had a lot of passion, you know, no, and it look, was about spiritual I, quest. I, think, I, think this I didn't hear a, that in Waters' no, no. music.
1: He, he feels strongly about this song. He released it on his own, recorded it quickly, put it out there. It's called Leaving Beirut
3: are these the people that we should bomb? Are we so sure? They mean us harm. Is this a pleasure? Punishment or crime? Is, Is this a mountain that we
2: Leaving Beirut, new music from Roger Waters that he is showcasing on his current tour. Jim and I are going to have to agree to disagree on that one. Um, well, we, we agree can't on one think thing. of how dull that music is. No, we agree on <laughs> one thing, is that he needs Gilmore and Gilmore needs him. Absolutely. So, boys, you know, bury the hatchet. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Next up, a dissection of a classic album from the 1970s, Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life. Number one album, of course, as was just about every album Stevie Wonder released in the 70s. In addition to that, his best selling album of all time, more than 10 million sold. In a lot of ways, Jim, I think the signature album of his career. When people think Stevie Wonder, what's he done? He's had a ton of hits, but I think this is the first album people think of when they think of Stevie Wonder, Songs in the Key of Life. We're going to look at it in greater detail, find out what made it tick.
1: Well, the music tells the story, Greg, and that's the place to start. Here is a, a brief montage that our producer, Matt Fingerspiegel, put together of some of the songs from Songs in the Key of Life. We'll be playing more later, but this will give you a sense of what makes this album special.
2: That was just a sampling of some of the 21 songs that Stevie Wonder stuffed onto Songs in the Key of Life when he was making that album over two years. The album finally came out in 1976, 30 years ago. That music still holds up. When you hear that opening horn fanfare for Sir Duke, it still blows people's minds. Jim, I, I know from personal experience, having played that particular song for some 8th grade classes that I go speak to over the years, there are heads perk up <laughs> when they hear that song they go what yeah. was that where can i get that it's it's suddenly like this revelation that this guy stevie wonder made this amazing music 30 years ago and, and here we are looking back on it it's important to recognize when this album was made the mid-70s stevie wonder at that point was already the biggest pop artist in the land he was coming off a four album run that i still think is one of the best four and soon to be five album runs in music history From 1972 to 1974, he made Music of My Mind, Talking Book, Inner Visions, Fulfillingness' First Finale, all of them, Jim, masterpieces as far as I'm concerned. It's considered his classic period. Oh, my God. He was making amazing work, coming off of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, which was kind of the emancipation address for artists at Motown before they'd sort of been locked into this production line at Motown and Barry Gordy the songwriters wrote the songs, the performers performed the songs, the house band was the band on every song Marvin Gaye sort of freed himself from those strictures on what's going on and sort of cleared the way for Stevie Wonder to be his own boss in the studio, make the records the way he wanted to, write the songs the way he wanted to, produce the songs the way he wanted to, play, in many cases, the songs entirely himself, become a one-man band in the studio. He was on a remarkable role and then in 1975, he decides to clear the decks again. Mm-hmm. He'd been working with these two guys, Robert maguloff and uh, Malcolm Cecil, and just said, okay, I'm parting ways with you guys. I'm moving on. He ditched his band, started hiring some new people. You're going to hear from one of them in the next few minutes. These young guys, some of whom had not really had a lot of experience in other recording sessions of any magnitude, bring them into his new team and recording what would be the landmark album of his career, Songs in the Key of Life. Yeah, I I have to confess. When we were talking, Greg,
1: about what we were going to do for our second classic album dissection, I was dubious when you suggested Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life. We had done Revolver. For our first of these on public radio uh, On the occasion of its 40th anniversary The Beatles classic Uh, You know, I was skeptical I I respect Stevie Wonder More than I I really deeply admire him And especially Songs in the Key of Life I mean, call me weird and perverse But after Songs in the Key of Life Wonder's classic period ended And he started making albums Like Secret Lives of Plants You know, where it was basically New Age music With a lot of synthesizer I kind of prefer that (laughs) Because I'm a Moog freak yeah. I love what Wonder did with the synthesizer you know Songs in the Key of Life has some classic singles we heard some of them in the montage we're going to play more of them later but it also has some sappiness you know something like Isn't She Lovely you dig into the history of the album you realize he's talking about his baby girl mm-hmm. Aisha who, who had just recently been born and obviously there's one or two lyrical nods it suddenly gives you a whole new perspective but, but Stevie he's not a very good lyricist and I went back and I, I dug up the original 1976 Rolling Stone record review Vince Aletti who I think is one of the most insightful writers ever, he really gave a lukewarm review to Songs in the Key of Life Mm -hmm. in December 76 in Rolling Stone because the lyrics were so dumb. I I quote, Wonders' lyrics aren't clever or particularly intelligent, but at their best, they're instinctive, straightforward, and touchingly sincere. Unfortunately, at their worst, they're convoluted, awkward, atrociously rhymed and (laughs) tangled up in their pretensions to poetic style. Mm -hmm. Of course, you can argue. It's never been about the lyrics with Stevie. It's about that voice, which is one of the most expressive in all of rock or pop history, and also about his arranging talents. I went in and read the history of where this album was coming from. One thing that really helped me understand the album is that, that, that Wonder had had a uh, serious, almost fatal automobile accident in august of 73 so almost three years before the release of of this album uh he he was driving in a car uh he wasn't driving because he's blind but he was (laughs) in the passenger seat and and a a truck in front of them a log came rolling off it went right through the windshield smashed into his head put him in a coma for for some time and resulted in a permanent loss of his sense of smell so here you have this incredible man who who is is deprived of his sight no longer has his smell, which, of course, affects his taste. The only sense that Stevie Wonder really has left is, is touching and, and hearing. Mm-hmm. You know, And he makes this incredible album called Songs in the Key of Life. It says right in the title, I'm happy to be alive. This guy is just, is just glad that he survived these things. He's looking at the things around him that are good, the loves of his life uh, for his daughter, for his significant other, and music. It, it is. It is. So, so, so it's hard to be cynical about it. The, the kind of the uh, the 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 slightness of some of
2: the lyrics, the cheery optimism. When this guy is just lucky to be alive at all. Absolutely, I think that's the beauty of this record. It notice the chord structures. It's almost all major chords. It's uh, it, he simplified his music in a lot of ways. A lot of people lamented, and I think Vince Aletti was among them who lamented the fact that in a lot of ways this is a less complex album than those earlier masterworks that I cited. Um, You know, there was protest songs on those earlier records. There there were darker melodies. There's nothing like that on songs in the key of life. It's all up. It's all kind of major keys, and there's beautiful melodies throughout this record. And I think you nailed it on the head, Jim. This is a, a joyous record. And coming where it did, in the middle of the 70s, on the cusp of punk, uh, we were, at, you know, at the end of the Nixon administration, the country was in a really low state of mind at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was an amazing document to come out when it did and saying what it did. Uh, kind of a reaffirmation of why we're on this planet. And, you know, yeah. in, in a lot of ways, these songs address everything from childhood and I wish to childbirth and isn't she lovely to love in a song like Knocks Me Off My Feet to, to his just sheer joy at being a fan in Sir Duke I mean the, just, yeah. uh, just the joy Loving of music. that music as you're
1: saying. Well and and it took forever to make <laughs> that's part yeah. of the story uh, you know two years in the making of this album hundreds of songs to choose from recorded on both coasts a massive effort. We're going to get some insight into all of that but first we have to take a short break. When we return we're going to talk to one of the musicians who worked on the session as well as one of the engineers. Then you'll hear Greg and my favorite tracks from Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder. That's when we return to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're in the midst of dissecting Stevie Wonder's classic album, Songs in the Key of Life. But before we give you more of our take on the record, we wanted to talk to some of the people involved in the making of it. Greg
1: Fillingains was the man hired to play keyboards on the album, including Fender Rhodes, the uh, electric acoustic piano that Fender, the guitar people made. Uh, though, of course, Stevie himself is a keyboardist. Gaines has since played with countless musicians, including Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney, and Quincy Jones. But Songs in the Key of Life was his first job. We asked him about this experience.
2: So you were how old when, uh, when uh, Stevie hired you?
0: Just before I turned 19. But here's the other side of that perspective. It was just before I turned 19, but it was just before he turned 26. Right. Mm. <laughs> I mean, 25, rather. He was a baby, too. It was like he wasn't even 25 yet.
2: He'd had a substantial career already at that point, yeah.
0: though. Oh, unbelievable. He yeah. was the king.
2: He was on a roll at that point. I mean, those four albums that he'd made right in a row there Music of My Absolutely Mind, Talking right. Book, Intervisions, Fulfilling as his first finale, Absolutely. from 72 to 74. And did you sort of have a sense of what was going on, that he was making this massive, you know, this is going to be the biggest project yet?
0: No, I had a sense that it was going to be really big because it was taken so darn long.
2: Yeah. <laughs> How long um, were the sessions?
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there are sessions and then there's Stevie time. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like uh, we didn't have like formal sessions. It's just like you went to the studio and that's where you were.
1: Did he have a grand plan? I guess that was the question that Greg Cott was asking before. Uh, we're talking to Greg Fillingains, who played on Songs in the Key of Life. Did, did Stevie have a grand concept, a grand plan, or was it a creative thing that was just, it was uh, developing as you guys went along during this these endless recording sessions?
0: Well, uh, if anything, it was more of the, the latter, you know, mm-hmm. that, that things developed more because he was, uh, he gathered inspiration from a lot of different areas, the band being, one of the main parts, I would say, but he had a ton of songs as well.
2: Mm -hmm. He uh, is notable for being able to play just about anything he wants, any instrument he wants uh, more than competently, and has made some tracks completely on his own. Mm -hmm. What was your sense of what, you know, and it must have been daunting for you, especially Greg, as a keyboard player, you know, here's maybe the premier keyboardist on the planet at that point, and certainly the most celebrated, asking you to do keyboard parts on his record. Uh, What kind of direction was he giving you guys?
0: Well, he was pretty specific. What I loved about learning from him was that he had or has this tremendous ability to understand the essence of any genre and, and translate that back in his own way but make it believable at the same time. And, you know, he probably got that from Ray because Ray, I think, was the same way.
1: From Ray Charles. But,
0: uh yeah. You know, I adapted that that mentality from him. At the same time, he knew that I understood him, that I understood him musically. I understood how he thinks. You know, I wasn't able to do everything he could do at that time, but you know, I think he trusted me more than I trusted myself at the time because yeah, I was pretty nervous. It was mm-hmm. it was an incredible thing. You know, I mean, I remember. Um, uh, for instance, uh, when we were working on uh, the song Saturn, he was using at this time this uh, this prototype, really, of uh, an instrument from Yamaha called the Dream Machine. It's this huge white thing, and it could house a family of eight. I mean, it was huge. <laughs> and the two of us are sitting on this grand, grandiose thing, and we're playing these parts, and it's just me and him, and he's just sitting there bobbing his head, and I started bobbing my head too. It was just like the two of us, and it was really... Very intimate and very special.
2: And you guys were both sitting on this huge instrument. Yeah. Wow, that's that's pretty amazing. Um, wh- what was to say that he wouldn't just do it himself and overdub all this stuff? Why Why did he want another musician in on, involved here?
0: I guess to give, you know, someone like me the experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got to remember he's he already worked on like ninety five percent of it.
1: Right. You know, the, the album is such an explosion of, of optimism uh, or big parts of it are. Do you think that he also wanted, you know, jaded at the age of 26, he hadn't done all this stuff. Did he want the perspective of a 19-year-old kid for whom this is like the greatest thing in the universe and you're there and you're fresh? and So even though he could have played your parts, there might have been a vibe coming through in the way that you played them?
0: Oh, I would imagine so. It, it was certainly gracious on his part. But it was, it was also a way of getting me acclimated to the whole uh, recording process.
2: Um, talk about Isn't She Lovely, Greg. You, you played on that track as well, right? Mm-hmm. Where did you fit in there in terms of what he envisioned for it?
0: I did the Rhodes part. I mean, something he could have easily done, but he wanted me to do it. He, uh, he did the drums and the synthesizer bass and string parts, the orchestrations, all that stuff on mm-hmm. synthesizer. And uh, but he had me do the roads.
2: Well, obviously he had parts in mind. What what was it about Stevie's parts? Uh, I mean, you've played with so many musicians, Greg. Is there a, a distinguishing feature that Stevie had in the way he wrote keyboard parts?
0: Absolutely. Well, you know, his whole approach is basically unorthodox. You know, but he draws from a lot of sources as far as different genres of music. And so he's able to weave them in a, in a very unique way, and that spells out his musical DNA, you know? But um, the part to uh, Isn't She Lovely It's just the chords. I mean, you, you know, that's pretty straight ahead.
3: Yeah.
2: talk about this as kind of being his grand pop record. Everything was kind of major chord based and there was a lot of really catchy choruses. Um, how do you sort of view this record against his other work uh, during that period when, when Stevie could do no wrong basically?
0: Well, this was the culmination really of everything that he had built prior to this. I've often said that it's the <laughs> and I don't mean this in a bad way but it's the last great Stevie album it's the last great complete Stevie album Mm -hmm. you know the album since then he's had great moments but this was the last complete where everything was just unbelievable every cut was a gem you know
1: Mm -hmm. let me ask you just one more question to wrap up Greg do you have a particular favorite on the record Uh, one that you may or may not have played on
0: it's not a favorite it's one of my favorites and I did happen to play on it it's uh, Joy Inside My Tears you know that song just absolutely tears me up so deep and heavy and, and passionate, you know.
3: I've always gone to the conclusion that but is away. I've asking for permission to lay something heavy on one's head. I feel that lasting moments are coming. So I tell you of the happiness
2: that Greg, thanks for uh taking time out to do this. It's a pleasure. Oh
0: my pleasure. Thanks for asking.
3: You're, you're, you will you do
1: As we mentioned before, Songs in the Key of Life was not unique just for its sound, but for how it was recorded and how it was released. Motown gave Stevie Wonder the freedom to record in the studio for two years, and the resulting songs were released as two LPs back in the days when there was Vinyl Kids, plus an EP that was included as a bonus. We wanted to ask one of the album's two recording engineers, John Fishbach, about what it was like to be in the studio
2: with Stevie Wonder. What was it about Stevie's working methods that struck you? I mean, you've worked with countless artists. Stevie must have been in a category of his own in terms of just how he approached everything.
4: Uh, well, uh, number one, he is the, uh, the uh, consummate professional in the studio. There is nobody, nobody better in a studio than him. He knows exactly what he wants. He knows what he wants it pretty much to sound like though we were given incredible, incredible latitude to change sounds. If if I didn't like a drum sound, we would go buy a different set of drums. Mm. If we hated a recording, we were always given the option to redo it. So um, he was the best in the studio. Uh,
2: I heard a story about, I think it was um, I Wish, the Sir Duke tribute, where he was... Uh... I guess he sent the band home at one point and then called him back like an hour or two later and said, I've got this great song I want you guys to play on. Got everybody out of bed to come and come back to the recording session.
4: That's Steve. <laughs> that, is, that is him. I mean, he, uh, you know, he was in, I, I think those years, he was unbelievably prolific. Unbelievably prolific. I think we had over 200 songs in the can wow. when Songs in the Key of Life came out. We had always had a two-track ready to go. A whole song would just come uh, all at once. He'd sit down at the piano, and boom, out would come this whole song.
2: Uh, we're talking to John Fishbeck, uh, who was the engineer th- throughout the songs in the Key of Life sessions, and I mean sessions that dragged on for, <laughs> for almost two years, I guess. Why did Stevie need other musicians on this record? It was clear that he could have played everything himself and sang everything himself if he'd wanted to.
4: I think there were certain things that he knew could be done better by somebody else. Like uh, Snuffy Walden was actually the third guitarist that we used on, on a song because the first two guitarists that, that were used were incredible guitarists, but they didn't bring whatever it was that Snuffy brought. And whatever he heard in Snuffy was right, whereas what the other two were doing, according to Steve, was wrong.
2: Why would, why would he, for example, though, need a Greg gains as another keyboardist? I mean, it seems to me that Stevie could do anything he wants on a keyboard.
4: Uh, that, that's really kind of true. Um, but the fact of the matter is, I don't know if Greg told you that we used to call him Memorex. <laughs> and uh, because Greg was um, totally, totally sympathetic to Steve's style of play. So it fit in really, really well. Plus, when Greg came to us, I think he was only eighteen years old.
1: Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. he was just about to turn nineteen. So, uh you
4: know, he was just real malleable. He he did what Stevie wanted him to do. It was a different texture. Uh, you
1: have to wonder too if Steve if Stevie wanted that element of of the person who was completely fresh to this.
4: Absolutely, and it was all part of something that was was really new. Plus, the idea of having Wonder Love was something that Steve was really interested in. He really wanted to have a band, a real band, and I think if you listen to Contusion, there's a good example of that was a great band.
2: Mm -hmm. That was almost like a jazz rock uh, thing that he was doing there. Yeah, it was fantastic.
1: John, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Greg, when we do these classic album dissections, we like to uh, have the last word ourselves. And we do that by playing a song from the album that we particularly love. There are so many, as you said, 21 total on uh, two vinyl albums, if you remember those kids, plus a vinyl EP. A lot to choose from, and you could go in so many different directions. As I said... I'm, uh, being the the cynical punk rock type, I I, kind of scoff at some of the more optimistic moments, although now that I'm a father myself, Isn't She Lovely means more to me. Uh, You made a statement before that you didn't think there were any of those edgy protest songs or or those, you know, city in turmoil tunes like Superstition or Living for the City that had come earlier in Wonder's classic period, and I beg to differ, and I'm going to play one of those. Pastime Paradise, I think... Is a very sneaky protest song or or bemoaning song, one of the saddest moments on an otherwise incredibly unrelentingly upbeat album and and I think it's one of wonder's best tunes ever. I hear this as him looking at people who are walking through life in a daze, not appreciating the good things, which is how it fits in with the rest of songs in the key of life, but also not taking action. Uh, against the bad things there's sort of a bridge uh, after he sets up the song and it, it, it has this kind of creepy vibe where he starts to list in a really interesting way all the problems around him dissipation, race relations, consolation segregation, dispensation isolation, exploitation, mutilation mutations, miscreation confirmation to the evils of the world that's how he ends that list he's not celebrating these things he could be seen as complaining about them i think ultimately what he he's doing is telling people to take action against them lift yourself up and out and move against these things because the next time he does that list it's done very differently Acclamation, world salvation vibrations stimulation Get off your butt and do something. <laughs> That's what I hear Stevie Wonder uh, saying. And kids, if you uh, are, if we're introducing you to songs in the key of life, and you hear this song as I play it, and it sounds really familiar, uh, let me tell you why. The key sample for Coolio's huge hit, Gangster's Paradise, in, uh, in, in the 90s, one of the biggest hip-hop hits of the 90s, uh, is based on this song. That's where the sample came from. Here's the original and the best, Pastime Paradise by Stevie Wonder.
3: Been spending most their lives living in a past-time paradise And spending most their lives living in a past-time paradise Been wasting most their time glorifying days long gone behind And wasting most their days in remembrance of ignorance so praise. Tell me who I live will come Dispensation, isolation, exploitation, mutilation, mutation, miscreation, confirmation to the evils of the world. And spending most of their lives living in a future paradise, they keep telling of the day when the savior of love will come to stay. Tell me who. Oh, come to be. How many them are you and me? Proclamation, exclamation, consolation, integration, verification revelation, acclamation, salvation, vibration, simulation. Pastime
2: paradise. paradise, you're right, Jim. One of the classics from Songs in the Key of Life. Even that one, he made, manages to turn optimistic, though. I think Absolutely. the mood of this album is very up. And that, uh, you know, the way he uses the Afro Caribbean uh, percussion and those synth strings in there, uh, very evoking another song. I, I think Eleanor Rigby from, from the Beatles, mm. uh, the way he arranges those. The song I'm going to go for is the song As... Here is Stevie in jazz mode. He basically tours the stylistic universe on this record. He plays everything. Afro-Caribbean music, soul, funk, funk and soul, yeah. rock. I mean, he's, he's touching on it all. Gospel. There are elements of jazz and gospel, especially in the song, and I love it for the way it came together, and you can hear very much the vibe in the room when you listen to this track. Stevie could basically, as Greg Fillingain said, could play basically everything himself, but he didn't want to on this record. He wanted to have those musicians in the room with him so that he could fire off them in a live setting and and as was very much recorded live. you can hear the essence of this impromptu band he put together herbie Hancock didn 't play a whole lot of stuff on this record, but on this track he is all over it on that Rhodes keyboard and his Rhodes and Stevie's voice are really the linchpin of this song the interaction between those two instruments meanwhile you 've got this incredible Baseline played by one Nathan Watts, who I think is the unsung hero of this record. He is the guy who sort of is the glue on 75% of this record. Uh, you can also hear this guitarist, Dean Parks, and uh, there's a drummer by the name of Greg Brown, and they are basically firing off Stevie and this wonderful optimistic uh, lyric about love. I mean, love that is going to last and transcend time. It it sounds like a hokey sentiment on paper, but the way Stevie sings it makes you believe. The key moment for me in this track is that Herbie Hancock solo in the middle of the song where he does something really incredible with his right hand. There's like a, a tremolo part in it, and you'll hear it in the middle of the solo where he really kind of dirties up, grimes it up a little bit. And all of a sudden, Stevie's voice from, goes from this very smooth vocal approach to this kind of gritty gospel feel. And mm. then he overdubs a whole bunch of Stevies in the background to give it this <laughs> really happening gospel feel. So the wall you of can Stevies. Sort of see, yeah, it's 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 a beautiful thing. I think one of the quintessential tracks in his career, and certainly one of the centerpieces of songs in the key of life. Uh, it's as on Sound Opinions.
3: As But make me the past, but that I mustn't fear For I'll know deep in my...
2: When we come back on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we will be reviewing the new albums from Beck and The Killers.
1: opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott and that is Beck. A song called Nausea, which is the first single from his new album, The Information. Follow up to last year's "Guero." Who is Beck? Well, Beck Hansen is this L.A. sonic alchemist and perverse little imp <laughs> who uh, dates back to the alternative era, the beginning of the the 90s when he first made his big splash with Loser. I'm a loser baby. We all remember it. <laughs> and uh, proceeded to ride through the 90s as uh, many critics' favorite genre-hopping guy who was mixing hip-hop and funk and soul and rock, alternative sounds and I mean, everything and the kitchen sink. It's what Beck is famous for you know, where has Beck been? In 2002, he made a very introspective and quiet album called Sea Change, which was really, I think, the best of his folky albums. He's made those in between the more soulful stuff. And then came back last year with Guero. It seems to, I think, he's been having a little bit of a midlife crisis. You know, Sea Change was all about the end of this romantic relationship. It left him devastated. Now he's married. Actress Marissa Ribisi uh, of Dazed and Confused. He has a two-year-old son. And he picked up this album, the information which he'd left off while making Guero. Started working on this record with Nigel Godrich. Godrich had worked on Sea Change and Mutations with him, as well as uh, being the guy behind Radiohead's OK Computer and Kid A. But then he got busy working with Tom York, and Beck got distracted working on Guero. Only recently came back to this mass of songs. Fifteen tunes on this album, as well as fifteen videos. Made these homemade, low-budget videos in the studio while working on the album. Bought an eBay mixer for $100 <laughs> and edited these videos. Videos are no great shakes, but there's a lot on this album the information. You get 15 songs, you get 15 videos. Let's hear a track. It's called Think I'm in Love, and then uh, we'll get into our opinions on this new Beck album, The Information. Really think
2: and love from the new Beck album The Information. Jim, as you mentioned, this guy has been the king of willy-nilly, hodgepodge, melting pot music for the last decade plus. In a lot of ways I think he was one of the uh, symbolic artists of the 90s where this kind of approach to music making really came into vogue. On the last record he started to sound like he was repeating himself. The Guero record was definitely Beck, covering Beck, and I, I think it was a misstep, the first serious misstep in his career. With the information, the most alluring thing about it is, you know, your ears are hit by this record and you go, wow, he's, he's in a different place again. He's experimenting with sound in really inventive ways. Drums don't sound like drums anymore. There's all sorts of percussion devices on this record. It's beautiful ear candy." There's some cool bass lines in here. There's a lot of sort of funk based bass lines on this record. And for the first five or six tracks, I'm thinking there's some really cool songs here. But I think he loses the plot about halfway through. Mm-hmm. These blobs of sound start becoming just blobs of sound. And I think what's lacking here are those hooks that made Odalay such a alluring mid-90s, you know, signpost. There's a point in this record where there's song after song, beginning with about New Round, into Dark Star, into We Dance Alone, where I feel like, you know, I just would have dropped those tracks altogether. This record could have been much tighter, much better if he had stuck to the more song-oriented stuff. I think he's got about maybe eight pretty cool songs on here. But as it is, it's about 15 tracks long. And as a result, I have to say this is kind of a misfire. Although I do like the fact that he's experimenting again, I just wish there were better songs to go with well, it. Well, look, this is a common problem in the age of CD. Just because I can fill
1: a CD with 15 songs, plus 15 videos, you know, doesn't mean that you should, Mr. Artist. But, Greg, I don't, I don't know if he's ever been better than he is on the good moments here. And the reason I feel that way is while Guero was sort of Beck by numbers, Beck imitating Beck, and sea change was this blast of of sincerity from an artist who is known for his surrealism i think that he combines those two approaches here goes back to the old hip-hop driven groove oriented uh, approach on some songs gives us more honesty and directness and straightforward pop songwriting than he has on on uh, pretty much anywhere else except for sea change and you wouldn't think that those two strains could go together but they do plus He's getting serious and political in some of these tunes. Dark Star, that that song that you would cut off, when he's singing a a widow's tears washing a soldier's bones, sterilized ego uh, delirium sequels punctured by the arrows of American eagles. I mean, I don't turn to Beck for great revelation, but but I think that there's meaning there, as there is in Think I'm in Love. Not since he told us he had two turntables and a microphone did he give us a line as good as, as in this new song, Cell Phone's Dead, when he says, make a kick drum sound like an SOS. I think he's having fun, but he's also being serious, I think this is a great album and I would uh, recommend on the Sound Opinions buy it, burn it, trash it, rating scale that people buy this. For sure, there's some filler, but there's 15 tracks you can program out the ones you don't like.
2: Yeah, that's what you're going to have to do, unfortunately, and just like the album cover assemble your own album cover, take those little pasty things that he's included on the record and and create your own record cover with them I think you're going to have to create your own best album out of this one because the one he's giving us right now is not Beck at his best, I'd say it's a burn it. When You Were Young, the first single from The Killers' new album, their second album, it's called Sam's Town. And this band is coming off a 5 million selling debut record in 2004 called Hot Fuss. Big hits like Somebody Told Me, Mr. Brightside. Part of that new wave of new wave sound that was all the rage in in, uh, rock two or three years ago. In other words, reviving that late 70s, early 80s sound that you knew from bands like, oh anyone from Gang of 4 to Haircut 100 the beauty of Hot Fuss was here was a band that was not taking itself too seriously writing these kind of grandiose melodies that swept radio and swept these guys out of Vegas into the very top of the of the rock echelon now Sam's Town the new album they have upped the ante considerably on this one Jim they kind of worked with a nobody producer on their first record and he did a fine job obviously he got 5 million sales out of a guy by the name of Jeff Salzman now they bring in the heavy artillery. Oh yeah, they are bringing in Flood and they're bringing in Alan Mulder, two British producers whose collective resume—I mean, listen to this: these guys collectively worked for nine-inch with Nine Inch Nails, My Bloody Valentine, U2, Depeche Mode, The Smashing Pumpkins. I mean, it, it goes on and on and on. Mulder and Flood are, are the real deal when it comes to making hit records. Apparently that's what the killers were going for on this new record. We're going to discuss it in a second, but first let's play one of the tracks. It's important to note, too, that this record kind of uh, edges a little bit towards the darker side of Vegas. Whereas the first record was more about the glitz and the glam, Sam's Town is a reference to an out-of-the-way casino away from the strip, away from the glamour of the strip, and kind of where the blue-collar element in Vegas hangs out. There is a blue-collar element. Apparently the tourists don't see that, but uh, this is the side of Vegas that the Killers are supposedly writing about in this new album called Sam's Town. Let's hear a track from this new album by the Killers. It's called Uncle Johnny on Sound Opinions.
1: It's Uncle Johnny, a song from the Killers' second album, Sam's Town, coming off their uh, 5000000 million-selling 2004 album, Hot Fuss. I don't think it's an exaggeration, Greg, to say this is one of the most anticipated albums of the fall. I despise this album with a <laughs> hatred that I, I rarely have felt for pretty much anyone or anything. Oh, y- you know, it is one thing to shamelessly rip off The Cure and The Smiths and Duran Duran, as you said. It is quite another thing to then turn... To the the most bombastic, silly, muscle and synthesizer bound album uh, of the eighties from the most unexpected source, Bruce Springsteen's <laughs> "Born in the USA." These guys are making a big deal. From the title of the album, "Sam's Town," a uh, title uh, of a song, "The River is Wild." Yeah. These guys are imitating Springsteen at his very, very worst. How could you possibly mix the over singing of the boss with the over singing of Robert Smith? Yep. Well, Brandon Flowers does it. He's the keyboardist and <laughs> vocalist. At the same time, he's delivering the most horribly cheesy synthesizer sounds you've heard since Haircut 100, and he's given us some of the stupidest lyrics we heard when you were young on the way in. The devil's water, it ain't so sweet. You don't have to drink right now, but you can dip your feet. It's like this guy is a pots man just because some stuff was big in the 80s does not mean it should come back. I don't want Margaret Thatcher back. I don't want Ronald Reagan, and I sure don't want the
2: killers. This is a trash it record. Oh, it's, uh, well, you know what? You've done the job for me. I don't really have (laughs) anything more to add to that other than the fact that I never want to hear this album again. (laughs) You're absolutely right. This guy's. People think we have an easy job. We had to listen to this half a dozen times to formulate an opinion. I have to say that Hot Fuss was kind of a guilty pleasure for me. I enjoyed a good half of that record just for the pure. Duran Duran buzz I got off of it. You know, not that I thought Duran Duran was any great shakes either, but they had some great radio singles, and ditto for Hot Fuss and The Killers. I thought Somebody Told Me is a song that I I never got tired of listening to. It seemed kind of fun. It seemed kind of glammy. He wasn't taking himself too seriously. I love that about that guy. What happened to that guy? He listened to Springsteen. He's writing lines like, We're burning down the highway skyline on the back of a hurricane. Um, They have completely lost the plot. Everything that was good about this band has been just obliterated. And I really got to blame Flood and Alan Mulder, two guys with incredible taste. Couldn't they have alerted this guy, hey, you're playing away from your strengths. You're making this kind of dumb, big stadium rock album when, in Uh, fact, you guys are this kind of cool... Glammy, glitzy new wave band. That's I don't think you it works that way. With. I don't think Bono listens to them either. <laughs> so on our patented Sound Opinions rating scale, buy it, burn it, trash it. There is no doubt, Jim. This is one of those trash it, burn the trash can, uh, destroy <laughs> yeah. the room that the trash can is in album. <laughs> you know, there are certain times that it's rare, but certain times when trash it doesn't seem <laughs> low enough. Low enough, yeah. Jim, we're bound to have some albums that we like a lot better than the Killers record. We are going to be reviewing a boatload of new releases. It's that time of year. The major labels are rushing to the Christmas deadline to release all their big records. We've got some big ones for next week, including the new records from Janet Jackson, The Hold Steady, The Scissor Sisters, who are the biggest band in England these days, and The Decembrists, who is Colin Malloy, was on Sound Opinions just a few months ago, now returning with his full-blown theatrical band project.
1: We have some thank yous to say on the way out this week. Tori Southside-Malatia is our executive producer. Todd Bachman is our managing producer and director. Matt Fingerspiegel is our producer and our medleyologist. Uh, <laughs> Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn are our associate producers. We get legal help from Dino Armiros. technical assistance from Joe Dissot, and no end of goodwill from Jim Russell over at American Public Media.
2: Thank you for listening.